Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And we're back. We've had a brief hiatus. Um, have, we, have we done this since Christmas? I don't think so. Our last episode was the Christmas episode, yeah. which I thought went really well. It was. And so it, it has, in fact, been a while. Took a month off. Um, various things have happened. Let's see. I've had COVID. Um, I traveled to Maine. And other places. I went to Minnesota for yeah. my grandpa's funeral. I wasn't going to bring up the funeral unless you did, but now you have. So yeah. death is part of life. It is. It's it's an important part of the life of not only those who die, but those who are related to them. You doing okay? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm, I've got a, a very, uh, very much improved wardrobe now. You do I noticed that yeah. yesterday? Like, yeah. Who is this guy? It's There's this, no Jimmy Eat World hat. What? This is the Jack Nelson. Well, his his shirts anyway are mine now, and I. I, I worried yesterday that, that somehow that they were cursed because I keep spilling on his shirts. Was, was he a spiller? No. Or you just don't want to mess up his shirts? I don't want to, well, but I don't usually spill on my own shirts. But for some reason, the past two days, I've been wearing his shirts and I've spilled twice. So. so I am not above wearing things that I have inherited sometimes from people related to me and sometimes not. Uh, the last uh, four suits I've had, one of them actually came off of what my I don't want to tell who it was but what the deceased was wearing in the casket really and I don't know well, the reason they saved it <clears throat> um, that was but here's his problem. best suit I, maybe so and it looked great on me and then I lost all the weight and now I can't wear any of those anymore <laughs> yeah so I went to have them redone and they were like well if we if we make them fit you you're going to have one back pocket in the middle Mm. And I was like, no, that's not going to work. So, <laughs> that's a lot of weight loss. And every time you, I lost 66 pounds. Well, I need to do that this, this 66, year. 66, you'll be nothing. Uh, not 66. Okay. I need to lose about 30, about half that. But uh, actually, maybe it was, uh, you know, a providential action by God that I gained 30 pounds so I can fit into Grandpa's shirts. You look good, man. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that platonically. All right. Let's talk about the scripture. Yes, let's let's just get out of this conversation before I get myself sounding even more ridiculous. Uh, today we're going to be in Isaiah. It's from the lectionary readings. You got Isaiah, you got Psalms, you got First Corinthians fifteen one eleven and Luke five one through eleven. Uh, and so we have chosen Isaiah six one through thirteen, and. Uh, reason being, asked Peter what he wanted to talk about, what stood out to him, and he said, Isaiah, are you preaching Isaiah this week? I think I will, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. We discussed it yesterday. We're discussing it today. Yeah, I definitely outsource my sermon preparation to it's good. It's the good. lectionary group and to this podcast. I'm going to be in Revelation 20, Gog and Magog. Wow. Is it Magog or Magog? Or I Magog? would say Magog, but I don't know if yeah. it's, uh, what's right. Any of you the uh, Greek. biblical language interpreter let's see pronouncing aficionados out there linguists sure let let us know how to pronounce gog and magog anyway that's where i'm going to be because i'm about to conclude my series on hell and then um that is peter's picking up stuff on my desk so i'm a chaplain for canton pd and billy graham does these trainings and they want me to go to one and i want to but Billy Graham's dead. Billy Graham Association, or whatever it's called. Got it. Um, but we are going to talk about Billy Graham today, at true. least. Is that why you picked it up? Yeah, that's yeah. what I was looking at. The closest one is in Mooresville, my hometown. I don't like to go to Mooresville. Okay. But I will 
but not till the next round because I have a life event that's going to make it impossible for me to do that. Yeah. All right, so back to the lectionary reading. We're in Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. Do you want to read or do you want me to read? Do you want to, you, so you want to break this into two sections then? Let's. Okay. Well, I didn't do that on purpose. I just, I'll, I'll read 1 through 8. and you let, can, Do can, I read it right after you or do I read it later? As you wish. Well, why don't we do just the first 1 through 8 because we've got a couple of things to talk about before we get into 9 okay. through 13. So we're breaking it into two sections, 6, 1 through 8, and then 6, 9 through 13. Listen now for the word of the Lord. In the year King Uzziah d- of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a high and exalted throne. The edges of his robe, filling the temple, winged creatures were stationed around him. Each had six wings. With two they veiled their faces, with two their feet, and with two they flew about. They shouted to each other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heavenly forces. All the earth is filled with God's glory. The door frame shook at the sound of their shouting, and the house was filled with smoke. I said, Mourn for me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people with unclean lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heavenly forces. Then one of the winged creatures flew to me, holding a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has departed and your sin is removed. Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, Whom should I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Thank you for reading. So yesterday... Peter and I were, and usually we record on Thursdays because we discuss these in a group of clergy on Wednesdays, so that gives us familiarity with the verses. So I joke about how we don't do much as far as show prep, but we do. We just we do, do it the day before. Yeah. And since we started this podcast, we I think we've we felt this is sort of an expression of that lectionary group. That's where the idea came from, yeah. And when it was a radio show, that's where it came from. So this is a way of sharing a little bit of what we've learned from talking with our colleagues. But yesterday, we we meet for an hour and a half, and we probably spent a half of that time, 45 minutes, just talking about these verses. So mm-hmm. Maybe that's why they stood out to you. I don't know. Yeah, it's powerful, and the call, and the, the call is definitely central a, a central theme for this coming Sunday. Uh, we see that in um, in Luke as well, and also this concept of uh, confession, uh, the the realization that we are uh, sinful and unworthy to see God, or and yet it happens anyway. So, before we get into where I know you want to go with this, um, which is Riley's story, before we get into that, real quick question. Which is the more powerful call, in your opinion, call narrative from the Bible? This one or Moses and the burning bush that was not burning? Hmm. It's, it's hard because the Moses story is so uh, central to the... Um, they're both central stories. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to say. I would say Moses because it's very foundational to okay. Judaism. I mean, it is the it is the the way by which and the person by which God 
saved the the Hebrew people from slavery. The bloodline. Yeah. Uh, I, I I see your point as far as the its setting and the story, the overarching narrative. However, when you when that when I think of it, you know, general people always talk of not always, but will talk about call as a burning bush moment. Hmm. And I think well, yeah, fine, but this is such, so much more dramatic. Mm, it's a heavenly you're throne room. In the throne room, yeah, the Moment. building's shaking, smoke's coming in. Bush got nothing on that, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of former presidents, we're going to talk about um, a story that was shared with us by our friend, Reverend uh, Riley. Riley Covan. And. Uh, he wanted to give us a little bit of context, so he looked up King Uzziah and found that King Uzziah's reign was actually um, second only to Solomon's in terms of notoriety, in terms of uh, kind of being a wise ruler to the people of Israel. And so it, it was a and he died in a in a very peculiar way. He he contracted leprosy and died, and so um, he he wanted to highlight how uh, earth shaking this moment might have been for the Hebrew people to lose a king such as Uzziah to a disease like leprosy, and and where you know where they might be looking for help and how how they might be in that moment considering, well, what will become of us having lost our, a king like this? And he connected that with the assassination of John F. Kennedy in this country, which he was alive uh, for. He was not there present, but he you know, obviously saw it on the news. And there was going to be a, I don't know if a memorial service or just a, a revival or something that Billy Graham was leading here in Asheville uh, in the weeks following, and so he he purchased his ticket and, and attended that event, and he remembers very clearly that Billy Graham, when he took the pulpit, his first the first words out of his mouth were the first verse of chapter six of Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high and exalted on the throne, and. That, to me, is a super powerful way to sort of connect and to help us understand the sentiment of the people at this moment that Isaiah, uh, that, sorry, that Isaiah is speaking to, uh, to give them hope that there is still someone who is looking out for them. In this case, it is uh, God, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So... Essentially, what Riley tried to do, and I think did very well with that story, is to help us rediscover the shock that we don't get when we read this thousands of years later. Right. In the year the king Isaiah died. Well, I don't know who that is. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Yeah. Or even if you do know who he is, okay, he's dead. It's that same year. We just see it as a date marker. Right. But there was there was probably a just national collective shock, uh, traumatizing. Like my my mom, 
uh, I would often hear her and her sisters you know, talk about, well, I'm, I remember exactly where I was when Kennedy died, mm-hmm. yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know what things we have like that in our lifetime. I mean, it's 9-11. 9-11 is a big one. I was in college. As far um, as tragedies to individual people, though, I, um, I'd have to think a little bit more. Challenger, I was a wee little thing. Yeah. Um, Berlin Wall falling, that wasn't a tragedy so much. but it's, Princess it's a, Diana. That's a good one. Yeah. Anyway, John so, F. Kennedy Jr. And, yeah. and I think another thing that this that this story highlights and that's important for us to grapple with is the fact that the Bible often uses language of kings and lords and princes, and that's not a language that we're particularly familiar with because we don't use that in our modern democratic societies, right? But the the comparison must remain, otherwise the Bible is going to be very unintelligible to us. Well, unrelatable, yeah. And the way that Billy Graham tied those things together to say, yes, this was our political leader. And whether he was your president, you know, the one that you voted for, he was mm-hmm. our president. He was America's president. And well, I don't, grieving, I think, I don't grieving think his not, loss. I don't think not my president existed back then. Right. It was like, yo, we lost. But our president for the next four years, this is our guy. Yeah, you know, we're still Americans. Yeah, and certainly his assassination brought the nation together. So that I mean, I've never talked to anyone who said Kennedy was a bad president. You know, because he has that status of kind of almost a a martyr for which, which for is American interesting. Democracy. He was getting hammered in the polls when he died. Yeah, that's why he went to Dallas. Yeah. So, so anyway, but that's important. We need to remember to make that connection. And the Bible's talking about kings. It's talking about political leaders. Uh, and if we remember that and recognize that, it'll help our interpretation of Scripture a little better. Yep. So, before we move on to verses 9 through Well, we, we have only covered half of one verse, so we should probably spend some time in 1 through yeah. 8 verse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, let's, let's proceed then. The angels were there. He describes the temple. One thing that I really love that we didn't talk about yesterday is how it says his, his robe filled the temple. And then the angels repeat that, echoing in a poetic way by singing, the earth is filled with God's glory. And what I love about that is that there's this, uh, there's this parallel between the Lord's robe filling the temple and God's glory filling the earth. Making the temple earth and the robe symbolic of God's glory. Yeah, and God's, and God's reign mm-hmm. as well. And uh, just read N.T. writes how God became king, so that's kind of in my head. And one of the points that he makes is that uh, originally, you know, uh, if, you, if you go back and try to understand Judaism in the context of the other religions that were out there um, side by side, all gods had a temple, mm-hmm. and all temples had an image of that god placed in them. So when you read the Genesis story, it in that context of comparing it with other gods and other temples, mm-hmm. what you have is God creating the entire earth and then placing humans in it as his image or as God's image. So that is to say God's intention is that the entire earth would become the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, uh, and for uh, reasons that the Bible tries to to lay out, that hasn't completely happened yet. But that is the destination of 
of our planet. Well, unless you're big on fall theology, in which case it has happened and we messed it up. Uh, but it's eventually getting back to that place. Yes. And the, the other point is that we are God's images. We are made in God's image as, as a stand-in representative of God in the temple, which is the world. We can talk about that more later. I'm pondering something, but I don't know if I want to say it. And I think I don't. So we'll move on. All right, so they're in the temple. The seraphs are all around there. I think it's interesting that they're above him because generally the ruling person or thing, the ruling individual, doesn't want anything above them Hmm. um, as a sign of power. And yet God doesn't seem to care. And, because God um, is king of heaven. Well, my, my thing, and this is really just me, um, if if you really are powerful, you don't have to look for symbols of power. Mm. You just know you're powerful. Yeah. Um, it's like a, like a, I don't know, confidence thing. Right. I don't know why God would have a reason not to be confident. So what what is what is uh, Isaiah's reaction to uh, seeing all of this? Seeing this, uh, shame, guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does not come, it's, you know, the first words that are spoken are about God's holiness. And then all of a sudden, Isaiah in verse 5 chimes in, Oh, it's me, I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips. So, so I, I am sinful. And then you're going to you know, throw the other people around you out there it's like, it might not be my fault but I'm, I'm but we're all guilty yeah yeah so if you kill me you gotta kill all of them <laughs> and yet my eyes have seen the lord of hosts and um that is him revealing this uh, theology he was handed mm. uh, why am i worried that god's gonna why is woe fallen them to me because mm. i am tarnished ver- and and yet i'm in god's presence and what's the assumption? The there? assumption is God's gonna kill me because I'm not worthy of being in God's presence. Mm. Which actually, have you ever felt like that? Because I have. I have not felt like I was gonna be stomped off of the earth because of it, but I have felt unworthy, like to access God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to pray, but who am I to call on God? That kind of thing. Right. I think it's a statement of God's power that we, we feel small in proximity to God but I think it's a statement of God's grace that we can have the proximity to God in which we feel small mm-hmm. so it's this wonderful I want to I don't want to say paradox but juxtaposition of uh, power and mercy yeah and, and our, our colleague Reverend, Reverend Jocelyn um, Schaefer. Schaefer yesterday pointed out something that I thought uh, was definitely uh, well I hadn't thought of it this way before and definitely reveals the grace of God that the sin the uncleanliness of Isaiah's lips was of uh, major concern to Isaiah but to God it's already like God just has the angels deal with it yeah you know it's not even an issue yeah. It's and just like in response to that, the angel takes the coal, touches his lips, said, good, your lips are clean, your sins are forgiven. Now let's get back to what we're, we're here for. It's almost as if that was an unnecessary action. Mm-hmm. We're doing this to placate your worries, Isaiah. Yeah. Because who brings it up? Isaiah. Right. 
God, yeah. God could have said anything, or the angels who were running around or flying around or whatever they were doing, yeah, uh, talking about God's glory, could have just added a line, uh, and you suck. Yeah, but they didn't. Right, or or you know, this throne room scene could have played out slightly differently, where uh, Isaiah shows up and the angels are singing, and then all of a sudden, all the attention is turned onto Isaiah, and they're like, hmm. Your lips are unclean. Yeah, we have to deal with that first. Yeah, which they did not do. No, yeah. it, that, and and so I think you know, from personal experience, I I think that we oftentimes um, put such a heavy burden on ourselves. I know I do for myself um, that 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 it, that we don't need to because God is able to overcome whatever our whatever our personally imposed limitations are for doing the work that God is calling us. I'm glad you said imposed because I wonder how much of this was projection. Hmm. How much of this was Isaiah projecting not only his embedded theology, but also his understanding of how you approach a king Mm -hmm. onto God, who is not an earthly king, who does not necessarily operate. But look, I mean, look in the Bible, how people address kings, uh, King, may he, may you live forever. Uh, woe is me. I, I, you're wonderful, and I am tiny. That seems to be what Isaiah is doing. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that he was not even called into the throne room. He was brought mm-hmm. into the throne room through whatever vision or dream or whatever this is. Yeah, and God so, has a purpose for him to be it, there. And it, his I mean, access has already been granted. Right. And yet, I, you know, I wonder how much of that we project as well mm. um, in our own spiritual lives. How much are we projecting earthly standards onto our relationships with God? And I think probably a lot. A lot. Yeah. I would almost say that like 99% of our relationships with God are defined by earthly standards. It's not our fault. It's all we know. Yeah. So let's keep it biblical. And if you have uh, experienced shame about your sinfulness, just as I have, uh, take Take heart and take um, as a sign of grace this story of Isaiah that that whatever his sin was that was overwhelming to him, the uncleanliness of his lips, God was able to deal with it easily and quickly and uh, in, in, in very much so it seems for Isaiah's sake so that he could get Isaiah's attention again at what he wanted him to do. So with that, I think we need to move on to that call moment where his sins have been removed. It's the first time God talks. And God starts to speak. This is why I brought you here. Yep. Who, whom should I send, and whom will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Which for many is where the story ends. Yeah, it's a powerful call story. Uh, the song, uh, Here I Am, Lord, is just a, just a pulls on the heart I've heard string. you sing it before, yeah. It's, it's a beautiful song. I mean, who wouldn't want to just, you know, lay down their lives after singing that song? And yet, um, I you know, mad props to Isaiah. He accepts the call. Mm. Problem is, he wasn't actually given the call. He doesn't know what the full extent of his responsibility Well, there's that. But there's also, God didn't say, I would like you to be the one. Mm. Isaiah just says, oh, you need somebody? Sign me up. Yeah. So I think the beauty of that is that the presence of God alone stirs him to action. Mm -hmm. And I kind of have this Gideon moment 
where in Judges, I don't remember which chapter it is because the Gideon thing, Gideon story takes a few chapters. It's the, it's the first one where Gideon's there. Though. We're doing a Bible study on Judges. I should remember this, but I don't. Anyway, Gideon is in the presence of God and is like, oh, if you're blessing us so much, why are the Midianites overrunning us? Mm-hmm. Where you been? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember where I was going with this. Does he oh, feel like oh. he's unclean or unworthy? Uh, he does. He goes through the same thing. Okay. You know, I've seen the face of God. I'm going to die. Um, but in his story, um, there's this, this hesitancy to act. But it does stir something in him, being in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he asks questions. He is still hesitant to act, but he knows that some action must take place. And my question is, uh, where are we in our faith that being in the presence of God doesn't necessarily stir us to action? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, if you want to make an assumption, um, perhaps there's a correlation that leads us to believe that maybe we're not really experiencing the presence of God if mm-hmm. we are not stirred to act. Because over and over in the Bible... Theophanies, the presence of God leads to action. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's also, I think, the stories that we that we read of encounters with the divine, uh, in, including the passage from Luke, uh, are, or at least the ones that that then um, lead to action. They tend to involve an overwhelming sense of fear. Yeah. Uh, that that's the kind of um, that's the kind of interaction with the divine that that propels the the people we read about in the Bible to action, and I, I don't try to uh, invoke um, the emotion fear in my sermons. It's I don't know about you. Thing. Yeah. Try to scare people into action, but that's also is that my responsibility? Because in this in these cases, it seems like that's God's action, well. and I wouldn't want to. Take, take over that responsibility. I'll remind you, you can hear the conclusion of my series on hell Sunday. <laughs> good plug, good plug. What yeah. time? Services, service times? It's 11 o'clock. But anyway, no, I'm just kidding. I, I actually have been very, very careful to not use fear, mm. even in the sermon series on hell. In yeah. fact, the opposite. Yeah. Why you need not be afraid. And yet, we all encounter fear in our lives in one place or another. And oftentimes, uh, I don't know about you, but for me... Fear definitely um, has propelled me closer to God. When I when I'm faced with my own uh, fragility, weakness, inability to meet whatever the task the, the task is at hand, um, or or yeah, or fear for my safety or those that I love, it, I definitely find myself on my knees praying in those situations. So. so terrified or jacked about it or whatever, Isaiah jumps in, volunteers himself. Who shall I send and who shall go for us? And I, Isaiah, said, here am I, send me. Send him to what? Let us uh, hear from from you the, the next section of verses. Verses 9 through 13. And he said, go and say to this people, keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. 
Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is utterly desolate. Until the Lord sends everyone far away, and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth, or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. That's the end of the verses. So have you felt in your calling to ministry that maybe your responsibility is to make the mind of this people dull? Yes, but I'm careful about that. <laughs> because not just about saying it, but also um, about making assumptions about anybody that's not me. Yeah. Um, so maybe their minds aren't dull. Maybe I'm the one that's dull, and I don't see what they're seeing, that kind of thing. But have I felt it? Oh, my God, yes. Uh, my story of this passage uh, came uh, when I had finally bit the bullet and decided I'm going to go through this uh, discernment process that possibly could end in becoming a pastor, something mm-hmm. I resisted. Uh, and I said, uh, instead of here am I, I said, who am I? So who this is I like to- three or four years ago. Yeah. And, uh, but, but I had a good mentor who recommended to me, Hey, there's room for your doubt in the process mm-hmm. and you'll have a community of people to talk with about it. it wait, 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 time out. So you're saying that not all pastors knew exactly what God was going to do when they said, okay, I want to go into ministry. And yeah. they had a clear path going forward. All their sermons were automatically in the back <laughs> of their mind. Definitely not true for me. Not true for anybody. Yeah. That's honest. Yeah. 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 But uh, they have this discernment weekend in the Methodist Church, and they bring you down to, uh, I think it was in Hickory or Morganton. I can't remember. They exactly. run together. And uh, <laughs> they really do. Okay, yeah. and uh, and they have you they have they have you through workshops, and you do some evaluations, and and then you get set up with your group. But the the opening convocation. Uh, started with a sermon and the sermon was on this chapter chapter six and you know this in in the same way that court and i have just read this as different sections the the preacher read this in different sections and got a lot of yes and amens at At the end of verse eight and then the preacher said hold on just listen a little bit further and read to the end of the chapter and she said is this really still what you want to do with your life. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you said that the preacher or speaker or whoever said, hold on, just listen a little bit further. Well, what does chapter 9 say? Verse 9. Or Yeah, verse 9. Keep listening, hmm. but do not comprehend. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, and we and the, the, the truth is, that, the honest truth is, we don't get to decide the outcome of our ministry. Uh, God, you know, once we give ourselves over to God's will... Uh, and if we're diligent about following that, you know, then every action from there on is either obedience or disobedience. But the will of God is not something that we, um, uh, I don't think, have a, a super um, amount of influence. And I'm trying to be careful about that because I do remember the story where Abraham prayed about the destruction of Sodom and, 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 mm-hmm. and was able to barter God down from 50 to 10, whatever. In terms of, yeah, so we do have, I mean, God is a partner with us, and mm-hmm. we do have some ability to influence God's will through our prayers um, if, we're, if we're truly faithful and, and truly calling out the, 
the the identity of God, um, but it doesn't look like Isaiah here has that kind of opportunity to say, "Would you actually like change this calling for me and yeah. and allow me to convince the people to change their hearts and minds?" There is an echo of that story of Abram bargaining with God mm. in verse thirteen, even if a tenth part remain in it. Yeah. And you expect it to say, if you know that story, I'll let them live. Mm. But no, it'll still be burned again, like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's still going to go. As you read that, and I thought thought about, you know, where God says, after, in response to this question, how long, O Lord? God responds, until cities lie ruined with no one left in them, until there are houses without people and land and the land is left devastated well in my understanding of kind of uh um the the ultimate uh, kind of the eschatological end goal of god for the world it is not that everything would be left devastated Mm -hmm. so to me this is an action that may that that God is using as a way of purifying rather than like this is ultimately God's desire is that the land would lie devastated and yet I do I do feel that perhaps the the laying to waste of cities um, could be part of that process of purification and I say that because if you remember the first city written about in the Bible is the city that Cain establishes Mm -hmm. and uh, I happen to be a big fan of Rene Girard I bring him up in lectionary very regularly. I'm reading his bring book. Bring him up here every now and then, too. I bring, I'm reading his book right now. I, I see Satan fall like lightning. Mm-hmm. Just lost my bookmark. Wow. That is a ruler. Uh, yeah, so I, I try to be very careful with my underlining. Yeah, make sure he lines. That's smart. Yeah. Anyway, uh, one thing that Rene Girard is convinced of is that, um, is that every civilization, every city has a founding murder. Is murder or martyr? Murder. Okay. Murder. Uh, well, I guess both. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so that that most so that most civilizations, not 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 uh, cultures per se, but cities, political structures, political entities like a civilization or a or a nation has some sort of founding murder, and part of God asserting God's reign is to say, my kingdom. And my civilization, my reign, is not like those reigns that exist on the earth today. And unfortunately, that it seems like the people that Isaiah is sent to have kind of been caught up in. So there's a there's a work of purification that's about to happen. So we skipped over most of 9 through 13. Take us back. Yeah, so um, God commands, I don't want to... Uh, command might not be the word, but God answers the question or answers Isaiah's volunteerism by immediately tempering it and saying, okay, well, here's what I'm sending you to do. That was paraphrased, but this is not. Go and say to this people, keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Uh, your responsibility, Isaiah, is to tell them and them not hear you. Mm. And this makes no sense unless you have an eight-year-old at home. And then it starts to make a lot of sense Mm. because your job is to tell. Mm -hmm. You can't force someone to listen to you or even 
you can't force someone to change their minds or to see your wisdom. Your job is to tell. I think that in actually saying, but do not comprehend and but do not understand, it's kind of the Bible's way of telling you what's happening without talking about every individual's reaction. So we know that they're being told. Mm -hmm. And now because of the but statements, we know that they are being told with no effect. Mm -hmm. 10 says, make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. The goal is for them to reject healing Mm -hmm. or reject doing the things that would allow healing to occur. And, and I also want to preserve this, this, this truth at the end of verse 10, that <clears throat> if people do turn to God, they will be healed. Yeah. Like that is, that is... It's uh, the inverse of what it says. Right. Yeah. It seems counterproductive mm. for God to send a messenger to proclaim a message that isn't going to be heard. Yeah, like, uh, have you ever heard of the Greek uh, myth of Cassandra? Yes, Sandra. So she is has this incredible gift to be able to see the future, mm-hmm. but the curse that come that co- accompanies it is that no, no one else will, can see it. No one else will believe her if yeah. she tells them. I mean, can you imagine? And that's that seems like a similar calling here that Isaiah will find himself. In. So, but the why? So, getting back to my question, what is the point? Is is it not an exercising futility to? send the messenger to people that will not hear the message because you have made it where they cannot hear the message. Mm-hmm. My answer is no, because the, in, in the broader view, the macro view, you got to think of the fact that if you're, if you're just sending calamity upon them, mm-hmm. cities are laid waste, and no stump will be left, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you're just a butthole. Mm. And I don't think God's a butthole. And so good. sometimes... I I have these thoughts, but in general, I don't. However, if, if they're being told what to do and they're not doing it, then they can look back and say, ah, that's where we missed it. That's Mm -hmm. what we need to break right. So it, it is a weird kind of fuel call by design, which in a way brings punishment. But the ultimate reason that it brings punishment is to bring about healing. Mm-hmm. if they'll heed the call. But you have to have the call in there to do better if you're going to learn anything. I wonder if this also could be interpreted to say, you know, that, that God's work takes time. And sometimes when humans try to rush rush ahead, the, the plan is not ready yet. So part of Isaiah's calling is to, like, address the people because God needs to do this work of purifying the land. I think that the you know when we read the end of verse thirteen that the ultimate goal is that um, Jerusalem I I assume is the city that they're talking about, um, particular but there are many city several cities I mean it says until cities so it's plural mm-hmm. um, are lie in ruin, uh, but that those that the stump is a holy seed so that that seems to be you know, the, the ultimate goal is regrowth, right? Mm-hmm. But, but the first, there needs to be a leveling. There needs to be a cutting down, removing, pl- uh, purifying, even with fire. Um, and so it, sometimes human beings in our attempt to preserve what is ultimately destined for destruction 
maybe it is the the, the city the, the cities that, that that are being mentioned here or being alluded to here we get in the way of God's plan of purification and that's a hard that's a hard thing to accept because oftentimes you know we're very proud of what we've built mm-hmm. even if it is um, uh, contrary to God's plan I think of uh, the Tower of Babel for example mm-hmm. so if God is causing them to you know, take longer because they won't comprehend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think the temptation is for us to put it in the pulpit context mm. and picture ourselves as God. Mm. And we're lecturing these people Sunday after Sunday and they're not hearing us. Mm. Or they hear seems us like and they do nothing with it. seems like an easy excuse for th- not having a clear message. I th- uh, yeah, there's that. But then I, I just think it's kind of lazy mm. to look at it from just that lens. Well, First of all, it's kind of arrogant to put ourselves in God's position. Yeah. But then also, you know, it, it's a little bit lazy to just immediately assume that we're in the God seat and that other people aren't listening and it's on them because they're stubborn. Hmm. But, you know, who was it that caused them to delay in turning back towards God? It was God. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and Isaiah just acts as an agent. and. And you may be more familiar with Isaiah's story than I. Uh, does this play out in the rest of the book of Isaiah? Yes. Okay. Yes. And you remember, it's long and it's written over three different periods. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, this does uh, play out. They they continue to not hear. They continue to not heed the message. And there's par- parallels in other books as well. Um, and it, it continually says that it's God causing them not to see it. Until finally the destruction does come, and then God's tone shifts to the promises of what are to be. Mm-hmm. And so it takes us through the entire exile experience. Got it. So I think what I want to ask and what I'm left wondering is, and I, maybe there's footage of that Billy Graham sermon that that Riley had. I don't know. I haven't looked it up. But what is, I would be curious to see if Billy Graham went through verse 8 or through verse 13. First and foremost, I don't even know how you'd find that. I don't know either. But I wonder, you know, if we try to remember the context that the people were in having lost King Uzziah. Being shocked, yes. Yeah. So what what about this? What about this could be good news, I guess, is what I'm wondering. Or, Or what could be comforting about this at all as a prophecy from Isaiah? Not only that, but why do we need to have to go through some shocking tragedy to open our eyes to what God might be calling us to do. I am not saying that God's causing the tragedies, Mm -hmm. but why does it take something like that that just shocks us to our core to open our eyes? Follow-up question, as we become more callous to not only various news events, but also God's voice, Mm -hmm. is it going to take more and more and more? to open our eyes and get us to even try to see what God might be doing around us. Yeah. Um, the death of a king slash president, well, that's one thing. Well, then we don't really open our eyes collectively again until the challenger explodes, maybe. The 9-11 event, absolutely. So we've gone from one soul being gone to six, I think, in the Challenger, 3,000 in 9-11, 
it just seems that it takes more and more and more to jostle us from our sleep. Mm. And, and, you know, I think we got to be careful too, right? Because uh, the gods of the nations, uh, the idols of the nations do rely on, on violence and, and death uh-huh. in order to um, demand and command allegiance. Uh, and this God doesn't, um, at least that's my belief. So I'm getting back, like I said, to this uh, question of what is what could possibly be good news for this people uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, if it's as significant as a, a moment as um, as our friend Riley compared it to with the, with the assassination of JFK. How could this possibly be good news? Uh, and I think. To me, what I see is that the good news is that God sees, God is present, and so even God is aware of what we're going through. Yeah, and even in the midst of it, God is calling, and and, and I think if we're humble enough, we can acknowledge that yeah, maybe there are, there are definitely things that that God is doing that we're missing. It, it does help us to know that there's someone in charge who sees us and. I will say that the reason, it's kind of a bold prediction, but probably the reason that George W. Bush served for two terms is because after 9-11 was one moment in which he was standing on a pile of rubble at ground zero mm. and, he, and he was speaking to people and one of the search and rescue slash recovery workers said we can't hear you and he grabs a bullhorn from somebody yeah and he says well i can hear you Mm. and it was a powerful moment and he went on to talk about you know threats to those who knocked down these buildings but those words i can hear you in that moment where the nation was collectively hurting uh and wanted to be heard yeah and wanted to know that there was someone in control who had their interests, their concerns, maybe not at heart, but certainly in mind, and was aware of them. God's calling Isaiah to the throne room to send him out to proclaim that God is listening, God is present, they are not abandoned, mm-hmm. even though they're not going to hear it right. in their time of grief and in their time of distraction or whatever. And that there's a plan, there's a hope out there beyond all of the destruction that they will have to endure. There's uh, a tomorrow. Right. And th- there's, uh, you know, it, it, reading the rest of Isaiah, you see like, you know, the exile happened. It was going to happen. It had to happen. Well, I don't know if it had to happen, but it, at least at this moment, it seems like there was an act of purification that God was uh, preparing the people for. And, and, and with this calling of Isaiah... That there's an intention here because maybe Isaiah will speak and people won't hear, but at least we have this encounter written down as a prophecy that I think as, as a writing provides good news. That even if and even though we are um, unable to understand God's plan at some times and even though we have to walk through suffering and, um, and uh, disaster, devastation, that God has a plan and God has a desire for there to be regrowth 
uh, for there to be something made new. And that's what we see in this holy stump, uh, or the stump is a holy seed. Now, that's a, that's a phrase that seems to be packed with meaning, and we haven't unpacked it really. I just see a mother stump. A mother came st- from a YouTube video that Gideon watched. Uh, it's the stump, and then branches grow out of it. So from one big stump, usually as big, you get multiple new trees. Mm-hmm. They're not really new trees. Yeah. They're just... Anyway, that's Gideon, have, Gideon calls that a mother stump. That could, I mean, that makes sense. I, the the Forest Service general guidance on how to kill a tree, if you really want to, is to strip away the bark and cut through the, um, I guess xylem and phloem. There's a name for that sort of inner layer, mm-hmm. so that you basically stop the the roots from feeding the leaves and vice versa. But when you cut a tree down completely, just cut it straight off. Uh, that the whole process of pumping uh, uh, water up from the soil and pulling carbohydrates down into the soil into the root system, that that is still in effect. So that's why you get these shoots coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a chestnut stump in my yard that's doing that. Uh, it was cut down. I don't even know how many years ago. And sh- sure, much of the plant has de- decomposed in the ground. I'm sure and. There's nothing to see of it except that there are these sprouts that keep coming back. There's this desire for life. I have a tree stand in in front of which I've cut shooting lanes, mm-hmm. and I cut all the trees down. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, every year I get in it, I can't see a thing because they come right back. They came up. right back up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there, there's there's hope in in the even in destruction. There is hope, yeah. and the vision and the proclamation offer us that hope in our time of hopelessness. And for Pastor Hot Potluck, I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And I appreciate you joining us today. Peace. Peace.